Well, good morning, and if you will, join me in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21 together as we move into chapter 5 as we keep walking through the book of Ephesians, talking about walking in Christ and that we are to, as children of God, keep walking in our faith. And so last week I showed you that in chapters uh, 4 and 5 of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul begins to talk through a list of Christian behaviors that we ought to see as fruit from our lives because of what we believe, because of our faith in Christ, because of the grace of God. And so, uh, candidly speaking, on the surface, you look at these lists of behaviors, and there's nothing particularly remarkable about them. We talked about that even last week. It's got things like honesty and hard work and kindness and loving your family and being generous. Uh, And really, again, we talked about the fact that all religions really sort of preach those same things. There's nothing particularly remarkable about it. But one of the things that we see in the book of Ephesians, especially in chapter 4 and chapter 5, is that even though the list of things and expectations on our life aren't remarkable, the reason why Christians do those things is remarkable. It is distinct. And Paul shows you that the gospel makes us the kind of people that want to do those things. Woody Allen once said, the heart wants what it wants. And, and actually, believe it or not, the gospel agrees with Woody Allen. The heart does want what it wants. And so if you end up forcing the heart to do something that it doesn't want to do, then it's going to feel like it's in captivity. And that is ultimately what religion does. That's why religion often feels like drudgery to people. It's why it often feels like it's just something that they're being forced to do. Forcing you to do stuff that you don't really want to do and then threatening you with eternal condemnation and damnation is ultimately something that won't drive you to continue to want to do it. Eventually, you just get tired of it, and you'll throw your hands up. The way the gospel treats it, though, is that it reminds us that we are changed, and ultimately our wants change. Paul says that, we are to, that our heart is changed, so we begin to want what God wants. So for the first three chapters in Ephesians, Paul gives you one of the deepest explanations of the gospel in all of Scripture. What we believe about God's grace and about His mercy and and about the things that we cling to and the foundation that we're built on. And that three chapters of theology and doctrine, uh, then he begins to explain the moral instruction. And they're joined by a single word, therefore. And ultimately, we always want to ask, what is therefore, therefore? And it's there because it reminds us that what has gone before leads to what is coming after. And so the gospel changes us internally so that our external behaviors begin to show what has actually happened on the inside. Now, the opposite of that is what we talked about in moralism. And moralism is emphasizing external obedience over and more important than our internal change of heart that has taken place. Uh, Again, many of us grew up in churches or in families where we were told that we had to 
conform to that external obedience to some particular standard, we were told, do this and do that, or don't do this and don't do that. And if you don't do those things, then you're not right. And uh, if you remember, we talked about the fact that you can't just hang good flowers on a dead tree and expect that tree to actually produce those same flowers. That's not really the way that works. It won't work that way. The heart wants what the heart wants. And without a change of heart, you're not going to get a change in external obedience either. When I, when I was growing up, I loved mushrooms. Now, if you know me at all, you know that I despise mushrooms. But they tell us that every seven years, your taste buds change. And so growing up, I enjoyed eating mushrooms. Now, to me, it tastes like dirt. I don't want it. I don't want it in my food. I don't like to run across it. I, I used to disdain eating corn. I didn't like corn on the cob. I didn't like cream corn. I didn't like whole kernel corn. I didn't like sweet corn. I didn't like corn, period. And now I love it. It's one of my favorite things to eat, but I don't like mushrooms. And, and something else that I don't like is cilantro. I don't get what you guys see in cilantro. It tastes like soap to me. And so here's the thing. No matter how many mushrooms or how much cilantro you force me to eat, it will not change the way I feel about it. Eating more of it's not going to make me like it more. The only thing that will make me like it more is the same thing that happened to the corn. My taste buds have to change in order to desire and sometimes even to crave those things because now we like it. Now we want it. We want more of it. We can't get enough of it. I can eat corn all the time, corn casserole, corn on the cob. Regardless of what kind of corn it is, I love corn, but I used to hate it. And, and I don't want cilantro, and I don't want mushrooms, and it's not going to make any difference how many times you send me plates with that stuff in it, eating more of it won't make me like it more. Here's the reality. Gospel change is exactly the opposite of moralism. Your behavior changes because you change. You're made alive, and so now you begin to act like you're alive. Your heart has been changed, and so now you desire things that you didn't used to desire. And it, and it didn't matter how many times we made you do those things, you weren't going to enjoy it because you didn't want it. But when you come to faith in Christ through the grace of God and God changes your heart, now your desires change. And so Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, after all we've talked about, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of obedience, disobedience. There's a lot that's going on there, but here's where I want us to begin. In verses 1 through 6 here, here's the overarching thing. If we want to be like God, then God's going to have to change our heart. So here's the question for you. Do you long to be like the Father? 
That is probably the greatest indicator as to whether or not you've actually had an encounter with Jesus Christ and your heart has been changed. It doesn't mean you will always do things right. It means that you have a longing and a desire to always do things right. And even when you make mistakes, you are convicted of it. You, you feel remorse for it. You, you, are, you desire to be better and you're striving to be better and you're taking steps to be better and God is changing you and sanctifying you and making you better and so here's ultimately what happens when you long to be like the father imitate your father that's verse one be imitators of god as beloved children now imitate means we act like him we respond how he would respond to situations but notice a very important distinction we don't imitate god to become his children it says imitate be imitators of god as beloved children we imitate god because we are his children we want to be like our daddy that makes sense as children are are looking up to and longing to be like their father so we ought to desire to be like him see most religions teach you that if you imitate god then you will become his child but the gospel says imitate god because you are his child. And, and this makes all the difference. Here's why. When a religion tells you to imitate someone, be like Muhammad, be like Buddha, be like Jesus, be like the Pope. When it does that, it doesn't give you the heart you need to be like that person. It just gives you the commands to act like them. You ever get around someone and you admire them so much and and you want to imitate them. You like to be more and more like them. Sometimes that's a, that's a father figure. Sometimes that's a mother figure. Sometimes that's just a, uh, someone who is prestigious in the community or somebody that you know you just look up to or, or a friend of yours or something like that. Or sometimes it can be someone like a, a, a professional athlete. And I was watching the Golden State Warriors play the Atlanta Hawks last night. Actually, uh, I think it was November the, the 8th this past week. I was watching them play the, uh, the Atlanta Hawks, and I watched Steph Curry score 50 points. And he also made 10 assists, which they made a big deal about because that's one of the first times in a long time that anything like that has happened. Now, here's the reality. As I think about Steph Curry, who's six foot two and weighs 185 pounds, I'm about two inches taller than him. And I played basketball in high school, and when I played basketball in high school, I weighed about the same thing he weighs. I was a couple inches taller than him, so I weighed about 10 pounds more than he does uh, now. And so at six foot four, 195 pounds, 200 pounds, playing high school basketball, I, I had the same type of stature necessary to do the same things that Steph Curry has done. But clearly, we have gone in two completely different career paths. He's making $45 million per year to play basketball, and I'm not making $45 million a year. Now, here's a question for you. If I just decided that I'm going to imitate Steph Curry, let's say, for instance, that I'm back at my senior in high school playing size, six foot four, about 200 pounds, and I want to ultimately become a basketball player like Steph Curry for the Golden State Warriors. Could I become like him? I mean, maybe. But here's the problem. 
if I'm going to imitate him, in order to imitate him, I have to have the same drive, the same motivation, the same desire, the same heart for basketball that he does. I looked up Steph Curry's shooting regimen, and Curry shoots 300 shots per day during the season. During the offseason, he shoots 500 basketball shots per day. Just a few weeks ago, he hit 105 consecutive three-pointers in a practice. It's on video. They videoed him shooting 105 consecutive three-point shots in a practice. And that's why Steph Curry is the reigning NBA scoring champion from 2021. Here's the reality. More than just imitating his behavior, I need his heart. I need his desire to get up every morning and shoot 500 basketball sh shots. That does not include how much he dribbles, how much he passes, how much he works out, how much he conditions. Every day you have to put the work in to do that. I can't just decide I'm going to do it. I have to want to do it. Or after a couple weeks, probably more like after a couple days, I'm going to stop doing it. Well, here's the reality. More than we need to just simply try to act like God, we need to have God's heart. We need to love in the depths of our heart the same things that God loves. So where and how do we learn to love righteousness that way? Well, God has to produce that in our hearts. He has to change our heart. When He makes us His child, He puts His Spirit within us, gives us His desires. He helps us to see who He is. He helps us to understand what He has done for us so that we might be saved. He helps us to be overwhelmed with what He is as our Father so that we will naturally want to imitate Him, to be like Him, to be His child that acts like our daddy. Not because we're hoping to become His child, but because we are His child. We want to be like our Father. So in every situation, we're asking, what does our Father feel about what we're doing? What does our Father feel about what we're watching? What does our Father feel about the things that we're saying? So we must imitate our Father also. We are to imitate our Savior as well. Verse 2, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When God changes our hearts, we become more and more like Jesus. When you study the, the Gospels, you see how love bursts through every part of Jesus' life. When you see that woman caught in adultery that's brought before Him, rather than join in her humiliation and her condemnation, He spoke to her like she was His daughter. Words of compassion and forgiveness. Where are those that accuse you, he said. Why? Because he loved her. You see it when he weeps with Mary and Martha over Lazarus' death. Remember the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. That's what it was talking about. He was weeping because those close to him were mourning. He shows us that he feels our deepest pain. You see it when he weeps for us when he enters into the horrors and the hell of Gethsemane as he is praying and sweat begins to turn to blood. You see it when his body is ripped open by the Roman whips and pierced by those nails, and he is hung naked in the sky, in the sun, to die on Calvary's cross. 
And it explodes off of every page of the gospel. A tender love. Now how do you respond to that? How do you respond to that type of sacrifice on your behalf? If you've been changed by Jesus, you begin to show it by loving and forgiving others. Serving others. Loving your community. Meeting needs. Using our time and resources to be like Jesus to them. If you don't live this way, it's a good indication that you've never really come to any type of understanding of what Jesus did for you. And if you don't understand what Jesus did for you, then how can you repent and surrender your life to Him? Tim Keller put it this way, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the inevitable sign of a life which has experienced the grace of God. If you've experienced the grace of God, your life will be gracious towards other people. You'll also run from immorality. Verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The word proper there means it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense in your life, in your context, not as a child of God. Sexual immorality and covetousness don't fit with the character of God. Why? Let's look at it real quick. Sexual immorality. Sex is not supposed to be selfish and self-serving. Where you just do it because it meets a need in your life. It makes you feel good. It's something you want to do or you desire. It is supposed to be a oneness of your body and someone else that is accompanied by the oneness in every other area of your life. In other words, when you become one physically, it's to be matched by a oneness in every other area of your life. Emotionally, spiritually, financially. You become a complete part of that other person's life and they become a part of yours. But when you have sex outside of the covenant of marriage, you are taking the physical oneness from them without giving them the rest of yourself. It is unbelievably selfish. Your body is telling them one thing, I'm yours. But that's not true. Because you're not really giving all of yourself. You're only giving them yourself physically for a short period of time. And you and I know that when you're having sex outside of a covenant relationship, then you are free to walk away anytime you want to walk away. It is just instant gratification. That's what it is. Sex is powerful. It's a gift of God. And in the right context, it is a wonderful blessing. But out of that context, it is selfish and it is destructive. Alan, you don't understand. I, I, I love it and I, I need it and I crave it and I have to. It makes me feel good. Yeah, well, I like donuts and ice cream. I would say I love them. I would say I crave them. But my blood sugar tells me that they're not good for me. So ultimately, at the end of the day, just because it feels good doesn't mean you're supposed to do it. It is a gift from God in a particular context. The other thing that, we should, not, that should not be named against uh, among us is covetousness. Covetousness means desiring intensely something you don't, have, uh, you don't have to the point that you couldn't imagine being happy without it. Why is that not proper? Well, for the same reason that it would be improper for me to talk with my wife about how awesome some other woman was. Imagine if every night I talked to my wife about how awesome someone else's wife was. Wouldn't it be great to be married to her? I bet life with her is awesome. That's not proper 
for a guy who is married. In fact, it insults my wife. It's, e it's even more improper if I sit around with one of you and talk about how awesome somebody else's wife is. It dishonors my wife. And in the same way, for you to sit around all the time and covet other things that God has not put in your life and, and basically saying, if I only had that, then I would be happy, insults God. Paul's going to show us that our covetousness turns into idolatry. When we let something else play the role of most important in our life, even more important than God, it becomes idolatry. And God in His presence should be the only thing that we absolutely must have to be happy and to find joy in our life. So Paul says immorality and covetousness should not even be named among you. It should not be practiced, fantasized about, longed for, or even named among you. I love the way the NIV translates it. There should not even be a hint of immorality. What does that mean? Not even a hint means, verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Not only are you not going to participate in that immorality, in that impurity, in that covetousness, but you're not even going to talk about it. You're certainly not going to joke about it. It's a big deal, so stop making it something that's trivial. Because if you act like the temptations in your life are trivial or not a big deal, then ultimately they will consume you. Look at what Paul says in verses 5 through 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes from the sons of obedience. He, he's reminding you that if, if you don't run from immorality, then you will fall into idolatry. So run from idolatry. Flee from that. And ultimately, here's how we can do it. It goes back to imitating God and imitating Christ. Here's another question for you. Not just simply do you long to be like the Father, but do you live in the light of the Savior. Verses 7 through 11 says, Therefore, do not become partners with them, immorality, with covetousness, with the sons of disobedience. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Why? Because if you live in darkness you are doomed and this is where he's going to be headed here in just a moment but here's what we realize there's no point in investing our lives in this world and in sinful passions because they don't have any future here's what i want you to understand the works of darkness are unfruitful. They don't, they're like fruit trees that don't bear fruit. When Jesus was walking down the path toward Jerusalem, past a fig tree, he was hungry, but there were no fruit, there was no figs on that tree. He cursed it. It withered. It died because it was already dead. It was unfruitful. It was useless. If there is a God, then he rules for eternity. And ultimately, only those who live for Him will last for eternity. And everyone else will lose everything they've been striving for. That also means His ways are best. 
and ultimately joy is in Him. And even if you don't feel like it right now, the reason why some of you are wondering what's wrong with you is because you don't feel like the things of God are what's best. You don't feel like joy is in the Lord. You're, you're like, you say there's more joy in God, but it seems to me like there's more joy in sin. It, it makes me happier. Yeah, at first, sometimes. But when we begin to see what is eternally in store for us, we understand that whole concept of storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Picture a scene with me. Imagine that you got this great job, your dream job, on the first floor, of, on, the, on one of the top floors, in one of those skyscrapers in New York City, or whatever city is your favorite. But let's say New York City. You got a cup of coffee in your hand, maybe it's tea, maybe it's hot chocolate, maybe you're drinking water, whatever your favorite is. You are making a huge salary beyond your wildest dreams. You're leaning back in one of, your, one of the most comfortable chairs you've ever sat on. You've got your feet up on your desk with your $600 pair of Italian Pirelli shoes on, and you're looking out your corner office window at the city. You've got it all. Money, power, position. What else could there possibly be? Now listen, I don't want you to answer out loud because most of you are going to lie and try to seem spiritual around the people that you're sitting next to, but I do want you to take a moment and think. What would it be like to trade places with that person? To have that life, to have that power, to have that money. How much would we want to be in that position? But now let me add a detail to this situation. Let's say that this entire scene is taking place in Tower Number 1 of the World Trade Center on September the 11th, 2001 at 8 a.m. in the morning. Does it change your perspective of possibly wanting to trade places with that person? I mean, here, here's a question for us. What good is all of the worldly success we could muster if it's only going to last for a few hours? See, faith is living today in a way that you know one day you'll be glad you lived that way. And one day for us is in eternity. We know what God has in store for us because our Father takes care of us. And because of His love for us, we draw near to Him. He changes our heart and we love the things that He loves, which reminds us that if you live in the light, you honor God. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is what God has called us to do. To live in the light. Because He is in the light. He is light. He loves light. And we want to be like our Father. So our actions should show that we're living in the light. Now here's kind of taking that and 
building upon it. Here's another question for you. Do you long to be like the Father? Do you live in the light of the Savior? And here's the last question. Do you look for the wisdom of the Spirit? Look carefully there in verse 15 then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. Clearly here he's reminding us that we ought to let the Spirit guide our actions. That that should be part of who we are. But here's the reality. If you're walking in the light, then you should see the obstacles that are in front of you. And how foolish is it to see an obstacle and to trip over it anyway? This is what God is saying. I've put a new heart in you. I've lit up your world. I have helped you to see what is right and what is wrong. And, and as you desire to be more like me, you see the obstacles and the temptations that are out there. You understand them. Why do you keep running to them? Run from immorality. Run from idolatry. Run to me. Trust in me. Imitate me. Imitate my son. Be like us. Because I've given you the heart to love the things that I love. Now, here's a question for you. Here's a question for me. If we don't love the things of God, what is this passage of Scripture telling us? What is it reminding us? Is there anything of value in here that it's saying to us if we don't feel like the things of God are important to us? Well, remember he said back there, in verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or who's covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, why would they have no inheritance? Because they're not His children. We imitate Him as children of God, and if we don't imitate Him, then are we really His children? He's put a new heart in us. How can He put a new heart in us and new desires in us and us continue to live the old way? Why in the world, if my taste buds have changed to where now I like corn and I don't like mushrooms, why would I keep eating mushrooms? How does it make any sense? Part of the reason why it doesn't make sense is because we've put an emphasis on external obedience but not internal disposition, and we're not really truly living who we are. So the question for all of us today is really, who do we belong to? That's why he finishes by reminding us, let the Spirit guide your relationships. He says in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he's going to build on that submission here in the next few passages, which we'll get to next week. But here's really the question. What relationships is the Spirit guiding us towards emphasizing and loving and living in? First and foremost, here's the question. Who is your first love? If you go to the book of Revelation, you read chapter 2, you realize that the church of Ephesus is one of the churches that gets a letter from the angel of the Lord. And in that letter, he reminds them they're doing a lot of good things, external obedience, but they've left their first love. Their internal disposition, their motivation was not a heart that had been changed by God. It was an external public theater of what it looked like to be church. God's not interested in what you think church ought to look like. 
He's not interested in what you think you ought to look like. He's interested in giving you a new heart so that you will imitate him as one of his children. We ought to be filled with the Spirit, worshiping God, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Why would you do that? Because you have a new heart. And you love the things of God. And you love praising Him. And as He've said many times throughout this passage, giving thanks for His gracious love towards you. And then He reminds us that we ought to love others as Christ has loved us. That's why we address one another in our heart for our Savior and our God. That's why we submit to one another out of reverence to Christ because of what He has done for us. Here's the reality. Here's the point. You need a new heart. Tuesday, June 6th, 1944. 6.25 a.m. 5,000 ships carrying 175,000 Allied troops approached the southern beaches in France for the largest invasion in modern history. It's what we know now as D-Day. In Normandy. Some of the men who survived that invasion said that they remember in the final minutes before the ships landed the steady stream of messages and exhortations that were being broadcast over the ship's intercom to all of the soldiers. These were some of those broadcast encouragements. Fight to get your troops ashore. Fight to save your ships. And if you've got any strength left, fight to save yourself. Another went like this. We shall die on the sands of France, but we will never turn back. Another one. This is it. Pick it up. Pull it on. You've got a one-way ticket, and this is the end of the line. The two messages that the survivors most remembered was the clear call at about 6.20 a.m. Away all boats, and our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Over 12,000 American troops died that day in a span of about 15 minutes. As the boats reached the shores, the disembarking soldiers literally had to crawl over the bodies of other soldiers just to get ashore. It's an unpleasant image, I know. Especially in light of the fact that just a few days ago was Veterans Day. It ought to make you grateful for their sacrifice. But I share it because the men that approached the beach at Normandy that day had no delusions whatsoever that they were going to the beach for vacation. They were going to the beach, but it wasn't a vacation. You see, the book of Ephesians helps to reveal some of the mysteries of our life. And it shows us that we are in the midst of a battle that is no less intense with an enemy even more fierce. And honestly, the tragedy is that many of us have no idea we're even in a battle. And we approach life as though it's a vacation so that we can feel good, so that we can get the most out of it we want to, 
so that we can do all the things that we were hoping to on our vacation. But that's not what life is. You can wish all day long, as I do sometimes, but it doesn't change the fact that we are in a battle. And unless we wake up, we're going to find that we wasted our life trying to accomplish things that were part of our old heart, not the new heart that Christ has given to us. How foolish would it be to show up to Normandy on D-Day with a beach towel and a float? But that's how many of us are showing up to this life that God has called us to. To this battle that is no less intense with far more significant eternal implications. Here's the thing. If you act like it's no big deal, then you will do whatever you want to with your life. And you will try to live your life your own way to accomplish your own agendas. And at the end of your life, here's what you'll find. You have failed. You were doomed. You tried it your way. But it wasn't the right way. That's why God says, if you believe all of these things about the gospel, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Only God can give you a new heart, can give you a new appetite, can give you a desire for the things that He loves. To love Him and to love like Jesus. But if you want that type of desire, that type of appetite, you cannot get it by just simply trying to be good. You must come and surrender to God. He'll change your heart. Would you bow your heads this morning? Father, we thank You for the chance that we can hear and understand not only that the Gospel is made available to us, but that the Gospel changes our hearts. It puts a new heart. It gives us a new mind. It gives us new desires. It gives us a new appetite for righteousness, for holiness, for purity. And it helps us to see that even these things that we've been clinging on to, they're actually holding us captive. God, You've set us free. Help us to live free and to live for You. I pray You would draw people to Yourself today, save souls, and set people on a path of righteousness because only You can change our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.